and, and thank you all very much for coming. So we're going to have an informal conversation, and I'd like to start by saying that ISGAP, as Mr. Weinberg said, is the only uh, organization dealing with high-caliber research. We're trying to create an academic research center of the highest quality to deal with contemporary issues of anti-Semitism, to map and decode what's happening globally. We're running programs at McGill, Harvard, um, Stanford, and Columbia University in North America. We have a program at Sapienza University in Rome. On December the 3rd, we're opening up at the CNRS and the Sorbonne in Paris. And this summer, as you'll see in your packets, um, at Oxford University, we're, we're trying to create the first program of its kind where we're going to take professors from around the world and train them to develop courses and curriculum on the interdisciplinary study of anti-Semitism. And this is something, amazingly, that is really absent from the academy. And given the rise of anti-Semitism globally, mm -hmm. I would argue it's, it's, it's needed. So Professor Dershowitz, who is the co-chair of our academic advisory committee at ISGAP with Erwin Kotler, I wanted to ask you to comment, please, on the contemporary anti-Semitism. I would argue there was sort of a religious phase of anti-Semitism that was dominant and then sort of a racist form of anti-Semitism that emerged. And today the attack seems to be on Jewish notions of peoplehood. And could you explain to the audience what you feel that the, the, the environment in the contemporary context on university campuses in the United States, what, what's sort of happening on the ground? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me here today. It's a thrill to be at uh, Goldman, which is world famous for its pro bono work and the efforts that you make to share your knowledge and wealth in such a productive way. I often use Goldman as an example when I talk to law firms uh, as a model of how uh, law firms who uh, do very well can also do so much good. So, uh, you know, you really deserve a lot of credit and commendation for everything you do. And also, I want to thank uh, ISGAP for creating itself because it's such an important uh, element in the, in, the, in the debate. And so I'm going to answer your question in a way that you'll find interesting. And the interesting answer to the question is we don't know the extent, the nature of anti-Semitism on college campuses or in the world because up until now, it has not been the subject of rigorous academic study. And everything we know is anecdotal. And the reason I'm asked to speak about it so often is I'm part of the anecdote. That is, I speak on college campuses all over the world, and I have an enormous amount of personal experience uh, about these issues. But it's clinical, not uh, statistical. It's not uh, capable of being reproduced. And therefore, lots of people say, oh, that's just the way people react to you or it's the way people react to this particular rabbi in Brussels or this particular Jewish group somewhere in the world. There must be explanations and reasons. And it is essential that the study of anti-Semitism, like the study of racism, like the study of sexism, like the study of homophobia, like any other uh, pervasive hate, has to be studied, has to be studied. We just go back now and think about the, the Holocaust, which is only 70 years in, in our past, and already there are debates about the extent, about the numbers, about the, the, the realities. Um, and that's why quantification and academic, rigorous academic work, objective, rigorous, replicable academic work really has to be uh, done. 
So let me begin by talking about different kinds of anti-Semitism. You, you mentioned it. Uh, let me be a little bit more specific. Um, we're now seeing in two places in the world, two countries in the world, Greece and Hungary, a revival of the oldest uh, form of 20th century anti-Semitism, pure fascism, pure ultra-nationalistic fascist anti-Semitism with the growth of fascist parties in Greece, which remarkably has the highest percentage, according to recent polls, of people expressing anti-Semitic views. Hungary, which has a long, long history of fascist anti-Semitism, resurrecting uh, itself. And there it's not anti-Zionism. It's pure anti-Semitism coupled, the reason it's not anti-Zionism, it's coupled with even more ferocious anti-Islamic. Uh, feelings. And so it's the outsider, it's the non-Hungarian, the non-Greek who is being victimized and objectified and Jews are of course a very important part of that. The interesting thing is that we see it in countries that have very small Jewish populations. Greece has a very tiny Jewish population. Norway, there was an article today suggesting that the 932 self-identified Jews of Norway, most of them are thinking about leaving. Um, there are probably another thousand or two thousand who are assimilated and not identified as uh, Jews. And, um, uh, but let's put Norway aside because that's a more complicated problem. So start with the right-wing traditional fascist anti-Semitism, the, the fascism that brought the Holocaust, which ironically poses the least danger to um, the Jewish world today. It may pose specific individual dangers to individual Jews who live vulnerably in these countries, but it is not a major significant factor in anti-Semitism today. The second form, which um, is pervasive through Europe, particularly in areas with large um, Muslim populations, is Islamic anti-Semitism. I don't want to generalize. Not all Muslims are anti-Semites. Probably the majority of them are not. But there is a strain of Islam in which anti-Semitism is quite dominant. Most of the physical assaults that Jews have suffered in places like uh, France and, and Holland and, and Belgium have been from Islamic radicals, often just individual lone wolf attackers, sometimes uh, more systematic. Of course, one can go back a little bit in history to remember the attacks on synagogues that Yasser Arafat uh, was behind and other um, radical Palestinian elements, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, blew up some synagogues, uh, Hezbollah, of course, with Iranian fingerprints on it. Thank you for reminding me. Turn mine off, too. Uh, uh, with Iranian fingerprints on it, of course, blew up the Jewish Community Center in, uh, in Argentina and uh, other, other such places. So that's a second kind, and that's very dangerous um, because it melds a little bit into the third kind. Now, the third kind of anti-Semitism is in some respects, brand new. Uh, it's not brand new in the sense that Voltaire uh, didn't like Jews. He also didn't like Christians and Muslims. Uh, he didn't like any religions, but he particularly didn't like Jews. And there was always, and Marx, of course, who had been born to a Jewish family, didn't like Jews. There's always, Stalin didn't like Jews. There's always been a hard left hatred of Jews. The Stalin show trials, we remember all of that. But it's taken on a very, very new and and the most dangerous element, particularly in academic uh, settings. And that is the hard left has adopted Israel as its villain of, of, of the, the decade or maybe the generation or maybe 
longer. And you cannot join the hard left. It's a membership prerequisite to join the hard left to bash, um, uh, to bash Israel. I'll give, give you an example. Some of you may, may have been at Harvard Law School. There's a professor at Harvard Law School. His name is Duncan Kennedy. He's a very popular professor, very hard left, knows nothing about the Middle East. I don't know that he's ever set foot uh, in the Middle East. Knows nothing about the Middle East. Utter ignoramus when it comes to what is going on in Israel-Palestine. But of course, as a member of the hard left, he had to teach a course on Israel-Palestine. He had to. I mean, he wouldn't be you know, allowed to new left dinner parties or meetings. So he decided <laughs> to do that. And uh, he created a syllabus which was utterly biased. And one of my students um, went to him and said, you know, I've read your syllabus. I know a lot about the Middle East. I, don't you think you might want to include some of the following articles or books? He didn't include mine or any of the books that are more polemical. My case for Israel is it doesn't purport to be a piece of scholarship. It's an advocacy piece. But he asked to have Benny Morris's history, some other people, and Kennedy said, no, I'm not interested. This is my class. I'll teach it the way I want. And my student, Joel Pollack, said, no, you won't. This is the age of the internet. And I am putting online, for every article and assignment you give, I'm giving the students online an opportunity to read an alternative piece of scholarship. By the end of the semester, more people were reading Joel's assignment than were reading Kennedy's assignment, because Kennedy's was clearly polemical. And Joel's were scholarly and, and serious. I just make this point to illustrate the um, extremity of how the hard left has adopted Israel as, as the villain. And when you hear the hard left, it's not that we criticize uh, Netanyahu's policies. I'm critical of some of those. Not that you criticize settlement policies. I'm critical of some of those. Not that you criticize Israel's unwillingness to make sacrifices for peace. Uh, I, I share some of those views. It's the demonization, Israel being the worst, the greatest human rights offender, worse than Nazism. You name it, you read it, it's all hard left literature. So it starts out as we don't like Israel's policies, it moves to we don't like Israel, it moves to we don't like Zionism, and then it moves to we don't like those who support Zionism, the pushy Jews, the people who control the banks, the people who control the media. Goldman Sachs's name appears in some of this literature from time to time, and the morphing of anti-Zionism into anti-Semitism on college campuses with the help of Islamic groups like Justice for Palestine, and with the help of prominent Jews like Judith Butler, who is a very prominent uh, professor of social history at, at Berkeley and who thinks that Hamas is a progressive organization. Uh, this is an openly gay woman who, if she ever try to get a hotel room with her partner in Gaza City would be hanged. Uh, but she calls Hamas an, uh, a progressive organization and says that Israel is worse than Nazism and should be subject to the only country in the world to be subject to the divestment boycott sanction uh, movement. Um, she's joined by many, many faculty members. Uh, Vassar um, uh, recently, just to give you some anecdotal information, had four or five very brilliantly anti-Israel speakers. And then when a group of students wanted to invite me, they said, no, they wouldn't want to invite me. I'm too much of an extremist on, uh, on Israel, um, notwithstanding my support for the two-state solution opposition to, to settlements. The same thing was true just last week at Columbia University, or last month. Um, Amnesty International invited me. Uh, the local chapter of Amnesty, the Barnard Columbia chapter of Amnesty, the president and the board invited me to give a talk on, middle, on middle, human rights in the Middle East, and I was happy to do it. And as soon as Amnesty International's national office found out about it, they 
demanded that the invitation be rescinded. And it, they had no choice, the students, they rescinded it. They arranged for another group uh, to invite me, so I gave my talk, but not under the auspices of, of amnesty. And so um, one sees this third kind and the most dangerous kind because it offers legitimacy. And uh, after all, the left is very legitimate on college campuses. And you have gay and lesbian organizations, like a woman at City College who wrote the dumbest op-ed ever published by the New York Times. And believe me, that's a very low threshold. <laughs> but this was the dumbest. This was called pinkwashing. And the argument was that, sure, Israel is very good for gays. It's terrific for gays. Uh, gays are generals in the army. They're the heads of intelligence. They serve on the high courts. This is openly gay people, sure. But why does Israel do this? Only to cover up, to pinkwash how badly it treats Palestinians. So, and the essence of anti-Semitism historically, and I think research will bear this out, is when anything a Jew does is bad. If Jews are poor, they're too poor. If they're rich, they're too rich. If they're charitable, they're too charitable. If they're not charitable, they're too stingy. There's no winning when you're looking at Jewish activities through the lens of the anti-Semite. And the pinkwashing, of course, done by a Jewish woman here in the City College of New York, is quintessential anti-Semitism. Because there's nothing the nation state or the Jewish people could do which escapes her condemnation. Because anything they do must be motivated by evil, evil wishes and evil intentions. So what we're seeing now is a combination of these three elements. Uh, I guess the best example of that condemnation might be Ken Livingstone, who gets elected mayor of London, popularly elected. He was defeated in the last election, not on this issue. And he's elected uh, with great union support, and the unions in England uh, have been foremost in anti-Zionism and extremist attacks on Israel. And Ken Livingstone gets elected with a coalition that he builds of labor unions, Muslim anti-Semites, and right-wingers, right-wing, old-fashioned anti-Semites who like, even though he's close to being, I mean, he's so far left uh, that, that uh, you know, he's beyond socialism, but he gets support from some of the right-wing elements, and he wins, puts together a coalition. The only thing they have in common is the hatred of Jews. Um, when you look at Americans, you look at a man like Pat Buchanan. A man like Pat Buchanan by all of his political views, ought to be supportive of Israel. Israel's anti-communist, it has a fairly conservative government now, it has all, but for, for Pat Buchanan, his overwhelming hatred of everything Jewish outweighs all of the other political elements and leads him to become virulently anti-Israel on the extreme right. So it's a strange combination of bedfellows. And I make this point, and I went on too, too long, uh, in order to emphasize the need for research, the need for documentation, the need for really, really careful scholarship in this area. And I commend you for, for bringing it out of the closet, really, and making it a subject worthy of serious academic discourse. So thanks. So, so given this historical moment, um, on the one hand, we have the rise of radical political Islam in much of the Middle East and beyond, even in Western Islamic institutions, where radical political Islam cannot accept the other. They cannot, cannot accept moderate Muslims. They want to subjugate women, do away with gay people. They openly speak about 
not just destroying Israel, but even liquidating Jews. So you have this reactionary social movement, which is diametrically opposed to human rights and democratic principles. Supported by the left, however. Supported by the left. And on campus, you mention sort of intellectual stars who are gaining, gaining great sympathy uh, from students. They're teaching more and more courses. And great scholars like you, Erwin Kotler, people of my generation and now even a, a younger generation coming up who are doing research on contemporary anti-Semitism, in, in my experience, are finding it very difficult and we're labeled as advocates, we're labeled as uh, mm -hmm. Zionist stooges, not doing serious academic research, that we have this sort of mm -hmm. agenda. How pervasive do you think it is in the university in Europe and in the United States? Is, it, is there an encroachment in the United States or is the United States somehow you, the American university system immune? Oh, no. So how do, you, how do you see this? Not at all. You, you take a look at Edward Said, for example, who is regarded as a great scholar of uh, Orientalism. If anybody actually reads its book, it's, it's, a, it's really a piece of academic trash. Uh, um, there is no real scholarship behind it. It's all anecdotal. It's based on overgeneralizations. But it's today assigned to first-year students coming into colleges to read the way a Martin Luther King uh, speech or book would be read because it is the opposite of the um, hatred of, of, of the other, of, of Islam. It shows inclusiveness. So if somebody were to write a book, an academic book, on the other side of that, not only wouldn't it be assigned to first-year students, it would be regarded as not sufficiently scholarly. And so we, we have a double standard of what counts as scholarship today. In, in universities, and it's not only true of that, it's, I think it's true of, of many areas. I think we do have a double standard when it comes to politically correct scholarship and scholarship, which is uh, more controversial. You get people like Neil Ferguson who are condemned for their scholarship, or his wife, who was denied an honorary degree at Brandeis University because uh, she would make politically incorrect uh, uh, statements. Um, it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, shocking how academic standards bend to the political uh, winds. And, um, and so it's crucially important for there to be very, very serious academics who are in, engaged in this activity. Uh, let me tell you who I put the blame on. And this is going to be controversial for some of you, but some of you who are recently out of college, I think, will recognize what I'm saying here. I don't put the blame on Noam Chomsky. He believes what he's saying. I don't put the blame on Noam Finkelstein. Uh, he's wrong, but he believes what he's saying. I put the blame on pro-Israel professors who don't have the courage of their convictions to speak out on college campuses. I see this all the time. I speak at Ohio State. I get 1,000 people. Why do 1,000 people come? They think I'm going to tell them whether O.J. did it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. But they come to hear me, and then I talk about the Middle East. So they come and they listen. It's a captive audience. Or I go to the University of California, Davis, and I speak about... Uh, the Middle East. The next day, invariably, I'll get a dozen phone calls from professors saying, thank you, thank you, Alan, for speaking up. These are pro-Israel professors who are so happy that I'm prepared to speak because they're not. When I, I'm called every year to speak at places like Columbia, I say, why don't you have one of your professors? We can't get a professor at Columbia University to make a reasonable centrist pro-Israel speech or speech talking about Jewish values. So uh, I blame it largely on the pro-Israel professors. Uh, by the way, that's not true of pro-Israel Christian professors. Many of them are very courageous and speak out. It's the pro-Israel Jewish professors 
that don't speak out. They're terrified that their student evaluations will go down, that they will not be invited to honor societies, and they have a basis for it. I can tell you just an anecdotal story. So, and if any of you went to Harvard, I, I can talk, I'm retired now, so although it's bragging, you'll excuse it. I was a very popular professor. I had yet 500 <laughs> students applying for 15 places. Barack Obama still doesn't forgive me because twice he got kept out of my class, uh, and, and, and as did his wife. So uh, 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 I, I'm not so popular in the White House, but I'm popular among the students. And, and the other thing that I'm popular for is because my wife and I invited every single student to our house for dinner, and I had lunch in groups of four or five with every single student that I have. So I reach out, I mentor students, I thrive on my relationship with students. I love keeping up with my students over a 10-year, 15-year period. When I started doing a lot of pro-Israel advocacy, suddenly my student evaluations went down. They were always 5 out of 5. Suddenly they're 3.8 out of 5 or 4.1 out of 5. And the dean called me in. I thought I was getting called in for a little bawling out. And the dean said, I see what's going on. I said, what do you mean you see what's going on? She said, look, look at your numbers for accessibility outside the classroom. You're famous for being the most accessible professor outside the classroom. And you're getting zero, 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 zero from about 15% of the students. So it was clear that 15% of the students got together and decided to give me zero evaluations for everything, academic, knowledge of the subject of criminal law, zero, 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 zero. <laughs> you know, engaging professor in class, zero, 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 zero. So even if you get fives from 85%, if you get zeros from 5%, your evaluations go down. I couldn't care less. For me, it was a badge of courage. But for a young assistant professor or associate professor or somebody who's at a school wants to go to another school, student evaluations are very, very important. Another example. I was a blackballed from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is you know, a distinguished, prestigious group. And it's, of course, I'm probably not eligible for it because it's supposed to be somebody who's not only written a lot of books, but somebody who's also a, quote, public intellectual and operates outside of the university and writes books that are popular and accessible, and I just don't fit that category at all. So I was blackballed. Uh, again, for me, it doesn't matter. But for many professors, that really matters. And so, you know, there is a stigma attached to being pro-Israel. There is a stigma attached to presenting a balanced view. And in academia today, there is no room for nuance on the Middle East. You vote, you're either for or against. And nuanced classes, look at Columbia, this, the Middle East Studies Department, which has refused to hire anybody who does not oppose strongly uh, uh, Israel. And so it shouldn't be surprising that the study of anti-Semitism is a hard sell for universities because it's perceived as being in the interests of Zionism in the interests of Israel in the interests of, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of Jews who are the dominant group. Jew Jewish privilege is now a phrase that's used on college campuses along with white male privilege. There's Jewish privilege. And the one thing universities don't want to do is help privileged people who are privileged. So we get this reaction. So, so given your, th these personal stories, and mm -hmm. I think they're pervasive, it reminds me that anti-Semitism is often called the socialism of fools. And this reminds me of, of that phrase. So here, here we are at a very esteemed financial institution. In 2014, we're not at a university, we're not mm -hmm. at a human rights organization or the ADL, mm -hmm. and we're having this conversation. To what extent do you feel that the, the crisis, this global crisis politically, 
with the rise of radical Islam and it seems the inability for intellectuals to engage this radical Islam and to engage contemporary anti-Semitism in a serious manner. To, to what extent do you feel that this should be an interest, that, that this issue should be of interest to people in Goldman Sachs and to in, in, in the business world? Is this really an important issue or is this more of an academic exercise? Well, I think uh, anti-Semitism, racism, sexism, homophobia is bad business. Um, it's terrible for business. Um, Hillary Clinton puts it very well. When you disenfranchise half the world, when you discriminate against women, it's very, very bad for business. I mean, you know, if you imagine, it's like, it's like when I was a baseball fan in the 1940s before Jackie Robinson came. I mean, Major League Baseball was half of what baseball could have been. When Major League Baseball was open to African Americans, baseball became a fantastic, fantastic sport, much better than it had been before, basketball, football, everything like that. When women started to work for Goldman, I'm sure Goldman became a lot more profitable and a lot better. And uh, the idea that uh, you, know, you can distinguish between people based on irrelevant factors can't be good for, can't be good for business. And, Goldman Sachs is not only about business, it's about uh, business in a just world, in a, in a decent world, and anti-Semitism has to be the concern of, of everybody. You know, people say anti-Semitism is a sickness, and it's a sickness that has to be diagnosed not among those who are victims of it, but among those who practice it. Uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an illness that spreads, it's a virus. And, do you think, you know, do you think, I was speaking to Susie Garman, my colleague, earlier, and we were saying how Business is predicated on the capacity of goods and services and finances to, to go un, uninhibited. And radical political Islam and these reactionary forces even in Hungary and in Greece are trying to limit access to markets based on nation or religion. Mm -hmm. So do you think in this, in this sense that anti-Semitism is a threat even to, to the economic system or we're not I'm there? Not a, I'm not an economist and that's exactly something that would be a perfect subject for study. Uh, uh, in an academic setting. Um, recently when David Hawking, who I used to admire enormously, I'm sorry, um, Stephen Hawking, who I used to admire enormously, decided he would support the boycott, divest, sanction movement, I publicly challenged him um, to a debate. And this may sound a little cruel, but I also said I would not, uh, on the BDS movement, I would not object to him using his wonderful voice machine that has given him voice on the ground that it was made in Israel. Uh, uh, but here he is advocating BDS and using technology that was developed in Israel. I mean, the one reason BDS can never succeed is that if you were to think about all the innovations uh, made in Israel, made by the Jewish people um, generally, and the attempt to boycott, I mean, you know that uh, when the Arab boycott was on, it was not only against Israel, it was against Jews. They wouldn't allow Steven Spielberg films to be shown, or films made by other openly Jewish uh, film uh, makers. So, of course, it's a burden on, on commerce. You know, for every burden on commerce, there are people willing to take advantage of it, of course. We know that. And uh, so, opportunists will always say that they can make money where others are prepared to live by principle. But uh, this is a subject, should be a subject of study. A subject of study also would be how, how academically how, what, what appropriate responses to the boycott, divestment, sanction movement are legislatively, judicially, and uh, economically. I mean, economics are a very important way of fighting bigotry. Uh, people ask me all the time, what my most important case 
was, and it's never the ones you think about. The most important case I ever did was uh, Natan Sharansky's case, when Erwin Kotler and I represented him for eight years. He didn't even know we were his lawyers. We were retained by his mother and his wife, who had no contact with him. And um, um, you know, we worked our head off to do the, to get him out. The, our mission was to get him out in time for his wife to have children. She was then in her early 30s, and we, we managed to do that. And he had two, two children and uh, some grandchildren now. I consider myself their godparent, so their legal godparent. But we didn't win that case in the courts of law. We won that case economically. We won that case by putting economic pressure on the Soviet Union, using diplomacy, economics, politics, law, everything together. And I think that every element has to go into the contemporary fight against anti-Semitism. Look, Israel today provides a convenient excuse for anti-Semites. Oh, we're not anti-Semitic, we're anti-Israel. You know, it's interesting, Pat Buchanan's history. Pat Buchanan started life as an anti-Semite. When he was accused of anti-Semitism, this is before, he was pro-Israel. He was pro-Israel. When he was accused of anti-Semitism, he's a smart guy. He figured out the answer. He suddenly turned on a dime and became anti-Israel. And then he could say, people who call me an anti-Semite, no, they're just mad at me because I'm anti-Israel. He was never anti-Israel. He became anti-Israel to deflect the attack against his anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism was no longer acceptable on CNN uh, and other places. So, you know, the relationship between anti-Zionism, demonizing Israel, uh, and anti-Semitism, although separate. Criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. If it were, the largest concentration of anti-Semites in the world would be in Tel Aviv, and the most anti-Semitic newspaper in the world would be Haaretz, which is completely critical of everything the Israeli government does. So, there's a difference between criticism, even destructive, angry criticism, and the kind of thing we hear on college campuses today, which is way beyond criticism, it's demonization. So we're gonna to have to end it here because of time constraints, so thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Professor Alan Dershowitz.